This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. This is Joe Manis with St. Louis Public Radio. I'm at the state capitol this week on, for covering various issues. With me in Marshall Griffin's little office is State Senator Jill Shoup, who was nice enough to come in. And we're going to do a little podcast here. We're going to talk about a number of issues. Uh, thank you for Senator. And uh, you're welcome. We're kind of going to give you a sense of how things are going. So this is one of our live on the scene podcasts. Uh, Jason is at home taking care of more important business. Uh, thank you, Senator. It's great to be here, and I want to say congratulations to Jason and his family with their new addition, and hope everybody is doing well. Okay, now here in the Capitol, things are probably almost as crazy as at Jason's house right now with the new <laughs> baby. Um, there's all this stuff that's been going on with the governor. Right. And, of course, I want to emphasize, we're not going to get into the back and forth because we've done that on other stories on our website and on the radio, so uh, listeners are welcome to check all that out. But the bottom line is that the governor has been indicted allegedly for taking a photograph of a semi-nude woman without her consent. And this is a woman that he acknowledged that he had had an affair with. And this is back in 2015 before he ran for governor. So that's in a nutshell. Um, so far, the House, the Missouri House, has set up a special uh, panel to just look at this issue. This may not even go anywhere, but it does affect... Uh, legislation, I think, or at least proceedings in both chambers. I'm interested in your take, just looking at, just in general, without getting into the governor's uh, personal problems, but just as far as how it's affecting what's happening in the Senate or not. Well, interestingly, uh, we haven't had a lot of conversation about it on the Senate floor in the last week. Uh, very little. Some people allude to it occasionally during conversations, but I think we're waiting for the House investigation to move forward, and we're certainly waiting for um, what the prosecuting attorney in St. Louis, what, what, is a re, what comes as a result of that grand jury indictment. So is this affecting at all how the Senate is proceeding on other issues? I think it, to me, it appears very much like the Senate is walking on eggshells a bit. Um, I think that all of us are aware of what's going on. There are, um, we have heard that the picture is actually in existence. The photograph that um, is talking about invasion of privacy actually exists. And um, we'll see what goes forward. So far, yesterday was a um, very productive day on the Senate floor. We moved a lot of legislation forward. Our committee hearings are, for the most part, going on as usual. And um, I think that the Senate is, as senators, we're kind of standing by and waiting for maybe for due process to play out or for the governor to make a decision that it is in the best interest of the people of Missouri for him to resign. But at this point, I mean, the Senate's not taking any votes. The Senate's not really, I mean, as far as the governor, the Senate's not looking into this. This is purely this a House starts issue. in the House with the House investigation, yes. right. Okay, so for you, what are your key issues this session, and how do you see things sort of playing out at least at this point? Here we are um, right at the end of February. 
Right. So actually, I have um, I file usually over 20 bills. I think there are a lot of things that can help change policy in Missouri for the better. And this year, several of my bills are moving forward through the committee process, at least. So um, some of them are one of them was voted out of committee today. And this is interesting. And to me, the timing of this. So this was a bill to provide training to healthcare professionals in the mental health realm to make sure that they have training before they get their license and as they renew it in suicide prevention and awareness. We passed that bill out of committee this morning. It was passed consent, which means every, every senator supported it. It will go to the floor and not be allowed to be amended on the Senate floor. Ironically, and I think that, that you know this, we just got news very recently after that hearing but immediately afterwards that one of our former legislators um, has taken his life. So, um, you know, the timing of this, this is the kind of issue that impacts families all over the place. Um, Missouri has a higher rate of suicide than the national average, and it affects people from very young to the very old. And so for us to be able to ensure that our health care providers are aware of how they need to deal with this issue and get some background and training in it is really important. So um, as sad as it is that we have to have this kind of legislation, I'm grateful to my colleagues that that bill has moved forward today. Why do you think there is a higher suicide rate in Missouri than in some other states? What do you think are the factors? You know, I think that's a really great question. And I don't feel like I know what the answer is to that. So you hear about things like in Seattle where there's so much rain and, and darkness and less sunlight and uh, there's a high rate of suicide there. I don't know what the cause and effect is. I just know that the numbers demonstrate that Missouri has a higher rate of suicide than people in, than from other states. Okay. So do you think this is the type of legislation that might uh, be entertained by the full Senate and the House? What are your chances to put it Bluntly. Right. So this, you know, this does still have a chance of moving to the Senate floor, whether it makes it through the process. Um, I'm just not certain. We'll see. I think that everybody knows that this is obviously bipartisan or nonpartisan is probably more important to hear. Um, everybody in that committee and that committee is always made up of a supermajority of Republicans, just like the chamber is. Um, voted in support of this. So we're very hopeful. This is good public policy for the state of Missouri. And when we can put forward bipartisan legislation that impacts the, the people of the state of Missouri in a positive way, that's what we are need, that's what we need to be doing up here. And that's what, why people are asking us to work together and why we need to be working together. So um, at, what are the some other bills that you're dealing with this session? So um, just yesterday i think it was yesterday no it was the day before so you mean so we're we're Today recording is, this on february 28th right so on february 26th monday. i believe it was monday uh we heard the whistleblower protection for public employees bill of mine that passed through the senate committee and moved to the senate floor um this is a bill that says that public employees who stand up and blow the whistle on government waste or corruption or misuse of taxpayer dollars. When they do that, there will be protections for them. We don't want people being fired because they let the taxpayer know, the taxpayers of Missouri know that their dollars are being misused or abused. And right now, based on Senate Bill 43 last year, that was a, um, a bill that I think 
causes discrimination to happen in the state, these protections for whistleblowers who, again, step up to call out fraud and corruption and abuse in government um, were taken away. We need to restore those protections, and I believe everybody knows that, and that's why this bill moved to the floor. Now, it was on the floor, and um, a couple of my colleagues were involved in a filibuster of that bill, so um, the Senate floor majority, the Senate majority leader, Senator Kehoe, asked me to lay that bill over, uh, which I did, and I'm hopeful that will come back up. That's really important public policy. The people of Missouri want to know if there is fraud or abuse in government, and the people who are working there are the ones who can bring it forward. Now, are you hearing whether or not there are cases among state employees that are um, either facing more harassment uh, from their supervisors as a result of Senate Bill 43, or is this more... Um, uh, insurance to make sure it doesn't happen. No, this is uh, these are there are actually real cases involved, and I think the auditor's office is happy to provide a slew of that information when people step up. They are being fired, or they are being demoted or moved, and it is absolutely inappropriate that these courageous people who are standing up and step stepping up and 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 speaking out are are being their voices are being buried, and they are being in a sense, abused and victimized because they're trying to do the right thing. So um, why do you think that there, that there are some senators who are resisting this? I think they're doing it because they are trying to get me to move on other legislation. So they see this as a way to um, negotiate something with me. This is good government. This is good public policy. Um, I think it needs to move forward. And I will do my best to support the bills that I think are good public policy. So um, it's almost like, you know, a little bit of a bullying tactic to say, we'll move this forward for you, but you have to do something for us. Now, this is fascinating to me. I think right. it's fascinating our listeners to know this is how sausage is made, folks. Okay, so um, can you give some examples of types of legislation that some would like you to support and are kind of holding your bill hostage until you move on that. Anything you want to mention just in general? Well, in general, I will say uh, a bill that hasn't even been brought to the Senate floor yet is one of the bills. It's a it's a change in our tax law, and it's a pretty big bill. It's an omnibus bill. It has a lot of different provisions. Um, the sponsor of the bill claims it's revenue neutral for the state of Missouri. I don't quite see it that way. Yeah, well, we've run into some problems the last few years with right. um, bills that ended up costing tax costing cuts a lot, a lot more, more money than, than we had thought that they yes. would. And so when, even though the senator is claiming that his bill is revenue neutral, I haven't gotten there yet. Again, we haven't had the discussion on the Senate floor. Uh, he came to me yesterday to talk through that legislation, and we spoke a little bit, and I believe that um, there are some really good pieces in that bill that will help uh, generate revenue in the state of Missouri, such as streamlined sales tax, collecting those sales taxes. I know at some point in time the state of Missouri will do that, but it has other pieces that continue to cut taxes at, I think, what will be the long-term expense of the people of the state of Missouri who need services. So um, I'm really concerned about that. There is another um, public education, well, it's, it's an education 100% tax credit um, that will cost the state $25 million to put into place that I think um, does some things that I don't agree with. So I am try I've given several options and proposals to the senator who is carrying that legislation. 
uh, to say, I don't like your legislation. Here are some ways that I think we can make it better. Um, so far, they've all been rejected. Actually, after our interview today, I'm going to meet with that senator to see if my latest idea is something he could live with. But people in the state of Missouri care and want to make sure that our public education dollars go to public education and that our students were giving them the best possible education they can get. They are our future workforce and our future leaders and investing in them is the right thing to do. Allowing someone to get a 100% tax credit who then takes control of $25 million from our state coffers, I'm not so sure that's good public policy. So. Now, there's been kind of a dispute over, I'm going to veer off in the tax credits just a little bit, sure. because actually the governor has frozen low-income housing tax credits, which, frankly, um, previous governors in both parties had wanted to at least lower the ceiling on because um, they think that either costs too much money. In the case of Governor Greitens, he's questioned about how it's administered. My question is, um, how, does, how do you see the Senate overall dealing with the over the whole tax credit issue uh for years the senate's basically been the graveyard for most efforts to um, either curb tax credits or revamp them i mean do you think this might uh, affect some of that well I, I certainly think that um we will be looking at those things so low-income housing tax credits historic historic tax credits those are things that we we haven't talked about low-income housing on the floor yet of the senate we have started the discussion on historic tax credits, but just yesterday, so just on the 27th, um, we had the discussion about benevolent tax credits, and we increased by a little over 50% um, tax credits for crisis pregnancy centers, and you know that's not even at question. And that was a huge increase. So from two and a half million up to um, three and over three and a half million for these crisis pregnancy centers. And that just sort of goes by without even getting to the discussion of, well, are tax credits appropriate at all? That's not even part of the question. So with low income housing and with historics, what we know is that they have a strong return on investment that when we can help people with low incomes live in homes and have a stable environment, that what we do is create a place where they are comfortable, where they can get what they need in order to do what we need them to do, which is go to work and become contributing members of our society. When they don't have an affordable place to live and they're moving from home to home and they have families, that creates a, a, a real problem for people to try to have stability, to be at a place where they know they can go from home to get to their job day in and day out and, and to live in a way that is certainly not extravagant, but comfortable enough so that they can take care of themselves and their families. So the encouragement of low-income housing, of the building of low-income housing is very important from my perspective. And the return on investment of historic tax credits at a rate of four to one, I think is really also a no-brainer for this state. So these are economic development and investment opportunities. And from my perspective, we need to encourage these at as high a rate as we're able to give them. These are proven to be uh, great investments. Okay, joining us now is the our uh, capital reporter, Marshall Griffin. Uh, since we're doing this in his office, <laughs> so we thought we'd let him back in. <laughs> we right? thought we'd let him back in. He was doing something else. 
covering the news before and, beforehand. And of course, uh, everyone out there in podcast land, I would have said radio land, but I realize you know it is the 21st century now. Right. <laughs> if you could uh, see the uh, setup that we have right now, it's uh, it's functional, but maybe a little com little comedic. Primitive. Primitive. <laughs> yes. Right, and you actually Primitive. have to take steps to get here, no matter what. So. Yeah, and 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 the senators being very nice about all this. Um, but at least it gives you a little more, a little more uh, liveliness. So uh, Marshall's been covering uh, a lot of the stuff that's been going on this session. Are there particular things that you are interested in asking the senator about? Well, one thing in particular is um, there's a hearing going on right now about paycheck protection. This bill has already passed the House. Um, in any particular area, do you do you see the same consistent push? Um, against um, you know labor forces and labor workers in this uh, state or is it is it more ginned up than usual or is it about the same well I think that you know we see a consistent push and I've seen that consistent push since I've been in the legislature so I came here uh, into the house in began in 2009 and you know what I believe what what surprises me quite frankly Marshall is that you know with eight percent of our workforce union and uh, that's all, and that this is these are people who are trying hard to make sure that when you go to work, you get a fair wage for the work that you do, you get decent benefits to take care of yourself and your family, and that you work in safe living conditions. These are critical things. The unions step up and stand up for the hardworking people of the state of Missouri to make sure they're treated fairly. And I think the ability of people to join together um, to stand up for what they know is right in terms of working conditions. There was a need for it. There continues to be a need for it. And the fact that our legislature continues to, you know, again, from since 2009 on, continues to want to fight that and to undermine people's ability to stand together and to say, this is what is in the best interest. We need to make a decent wage. You know, the, the options are this. You allow people to make a decent wage, get decent benefits, take care of themselves or their families, or you pay for it in a different way through additional social services. And those cost the state money. So I really have a hard time um, understanding the state's interest, the legislature's interest in undermining unions. Now, uh, just so our listeners understand, the bill that's dubbed by supporters as, quote, paycheck protection, and I'm not taking a sides on this, what it does is, is, is this is directed at public uh, workers such as teachers and others who have uh, their um, union dues automatically taken out of their paycheck. Under this, under this bill, they would have to give their approval annually instead of just at the beginning of their employment. Now what they do is they get, they get permission at the beginning, and of course if they change their mind, they can rescind it. Under this, their uh, approval would have to be given annually, and uh, critics say this is just an effort to add more additional um, administrative problems for uh, the labor unions or the professional associations involved. Now, there also is a bill to get rid of the prevailing wage, which is something where uh, public entities such as school districts have to pay in that area the prevailing wage for a particular job. Uh, when they're having contracts, right. construction contracts. Uh, there's a move to get rid of that. There's a belief that it would save uh, these public entities money. There are, there are critics say that it would actually encourage more out-of-state contractors 
or lower bids who would come in and offer lower bids and that actually would hurt workers. So there's that debate going on as well. How do you think the prevailing wage uh, bill is progressing or not? Well, I think it's probably moving forward. I think we're going to hear this bill. I think um, Senator Schatz is carrying that legislation, I'm pretty sure. Um, and and uh, so I think it will move to the Senate floor. Now, whether we're, whether the Democrats, because it tends to be the Democrats that are not supportive of that, whether we're able to stop it or negotiate some change, I don't know. Um, but again, uh, it's a big problem. The one thing that we know about these unions is that they're very careful to make sure that their employees are well-trained on the job. As we know, sometimes the lowest price is not always the best outcome. So, you know, the part of the concern about this is for public um, jobs, for school district uh, building, for example, construction, what we want to make sure is of is that we have people on the job who are trained to do those jobs. And that's part of what the union can guarantee, even though they may not always be the lowest price. And the prevailing wage just says, look, let's make sure that this wage in the county that we are generally paying as the as the average county wage that we make sure that that is the wage that we use to pay people to ensure that we get the job done well. One of the arguments that I've heard as far as among the supporters is that um, the prevailing wage is a little bit more harmful in rural areas of the state than say in uh, Metro St. Louis, Metro Kansas City. Uh, what do you how do you address that? Well, again, I think throughout the state, and even though our requirements and things like building codes are different throughout the state, what we want to ensure at the end of the day is that we bring people in, if we can, from the state of Missouri to do this building and to make sure that they're qualified. Whether you go to school in um, a rural part of southeast Missouri or whether you go to school in St. Louis County, we want to make sure the building you go into is as well constructed and safe as it can be and that it lasts for the long haul. So when we do this and when we pay the prevailing wage, instead of be bringing in people who will work for a lot less income, but who may not have the background and the qualifications they need to do the job well, I think, again, sometimes we're penny wise and pound foolish. And we don't want to be that in this situation. Now, there had been talk that I've been hearing in the couple of days I've been here that there might be an effort to make it so the prevailing wage would be used in urban areas, but not in rural areas, craft some sort of compromise bill. Um, have you heard that? And I've also, I'm wondering if there, if that would even pass legal muster. I mean, if you look at other cases where they've tried to have different requirements in rural areas than in urban areas on other issues, uh, the courts have generally, the state courts have not been too friendly about that. Well, it's interesting. So I have heard that there is talk to find some kind of way that we can compromise. And um, should we go forward with that, I think that what we've seen throughout certainly my tenure in the legislature is that it depends sometimes on how you designate an area. So if it's designated by population, we haven't had a lot of problems uh, distinguishing um, more heavily populated areas and bills that apply to those areas versus less heavily populated areas. So um, I, I think that there are ways to do that, whether that's the right thing to do um, we'll see what, how the legislature decides to move forward, but I think that it can be done, and basically what we're talking about is population change in these areas. So um, suburban and urban areas versus rural areas, they're different because of their population. 
Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit. We've already talked about tax credits. Now talk a little bit about tax cuts. The governor has been traveling a state promoting um, his tax cut proposal. Um, amid his other problems, it's unclear how far he's going to get on it. But I know there are various legislators in the House and Senate who have been crafting um, some tax cut proposals. Uh, Senator, from your standpoint, how do you think those might fare? And how do you think the Democrats are going to... Uh, look at any of these? Well, again, I think that, you know, earlier in our conversation, I alluded to uh, Senator Eigel's uh, tax bill, which from what I'm hearing may be the one that is the vehicle to move some kind of tax reform forward. Um, I believe that Senator Eigel refers to his bill as being revenue neutral, and that is not what I believe to be the case. So I think it's going to take a lot of work I don't think this is going to be an easy lift. I think that we really need to discuss what this means in, in a situation where, remember, it wasn't very long ago when we were hearing more from the governor um, that he was saying we needed to borrow $250 million. So when we've gotten ourselves into a situation where we need to do short-term borrowing um, from a state that has a $27 billion budget, um, you want to make sure that anything you put into place that cuts people's taxes and puts or diverts them to other areas that um, that it is not going to hurt our revenue base that funds things like public education, probably the one of the most that pays our that pays our bills that um, makes sure that Missouri Department of Transportation has some money going forward. So uh, to take care of our roads and bridges, you know, I don't want to get up and and. And here on your next podcast that a bridge collapsed and somebody died because we didn't put money into our infrastructure. Uh, so there are lots of things we need to do with our money. We have, you know, a big cry for, men for additional mental health services in the state, for example. We have seniors, low-income seniors, who aren't getting what they need in terms of in-home care or circuit breaker, tax relief. Uh, there are so many things that we need to stand by and fund I don't want to put into place a bill that is not what it claims to be because the details show us that things like utilizing a consensus revenue estimate to increase the dollars that we think will be coming in for revenue over the next several years, I don't think that should be used as part of what the senator uses to develop his formula for a revenue neutral bill. It's not general revenue neutral and that's what we really need this kind of a bill to be. So. Um, it concerns me. We still are reeling and working out of the results of Senate Bill 509 that we passed a few years back, and there are additional triggers that will lower tax rates, uh, especially to corporations, that are going to mean less revenue coming into the state. So we haven't even gotten through the last tax cut that we put into and place. And that, that one was approved in 2015, if I recall, over then-Governor Jay Nixon's veto. But it generally didn't go into effect until right. 2017. Right. So those, and again, that's still, the impact of that has not yet been fully felt. So I'm concerned that we're going to move forward with the next round of, and you know what? Everybody would like to go home to their constituents and say, we've cut your taxes. But I think our constituents also understand in order to get certain services that we depend upon in this state, we're going to have to pay something for it. Now, uh, there was a big dispute last legislative session over um, services that had been provided to low-income elderly and disabled 
uh, the, the aim that the state had had for years to help them stay in their homes, uh, some sort of home health care, different services. That ended up being cut by the governor. He vetoed uh, a bill that compromise bill that had been considered only a short-term solution, to be fair. I mean, all sides agreed that was just to give the state maybe a year to try to work out something else. Okay, that bill is not in place. The cuts are happening, and yet I'm not hearing of any sort of new measure to try to restore those services. Can you talk at all about what the status of that is? I have so much to say about that, Joe. You're going to want to cut me off early. I'm, I'm <laughs> so, so first of all, yes. So HCB3 was what was passed at the end of session last year that the governor then vetoed. And that was, it's really important to know that both the House and the Senate came together, both Democrats and Republicans came together and said, it is good public policy to make sure that people who just need some kind of help staying in their homes are able to stay in their homes. And whether these are seniors or people with disabilities, we need to make sure they have that money because where do they end up otherwise? They end up in a nursing home and at some point in time, they're gonna end up, if they aren't already when they go in, uh, getting the state to cover that cost. And that is a, an excruciatingly expensive cost as anybody who's had um, any experience with nursing home knows, especially compared to the relatively small cost of a few hours of a caregiver coming in to provide help in your home. Your statement about the short-term solution, let me remind you that in the state of Missouri, we do a new budget every year. Every solution we come up with is a short-term solution. It's a one-year solution until we examine the budget and set our priorities for the following year. So I, I'm gonna just throw that argument out the window and say it took care, it would have taken care of our in-home seniors for one year. Now what we've learned that's happened that's been very interesting is these seniors were, or these people with disabilities were awarded certain hours of care in their homes based on a point system. So the more points you have, like the more things that you, if you are not ambulatory, if you cannot cook your own food, if you cannot get out of bed on your own, if you need to turn over, be turned over because of bed sores, there's a whole list of, I believe it goes up to 27 things that you can, that make you more and more eligible for more and more care. So what the uh, bill did was bring us down to 21 points. Um, let, me, let me make sure I got this right, no opposite. In the past, you were eligible for in-home care based on 21 points. What the governor did said you had to be able raise to get, the ceiling raise to, the to, ceiling to 24 points. So that group of people that did not meet that qualification were not going to get in-home care or were certainly not going to get it at the level that was determined was needed. What the people, the people who do these jobs are people who are compassionate and they have to use their judgment to make an evaluation about how well you are and w whether you're able to do something on your own or you need help to do it. So what we have heard, what I have heard, is that these people that go into the homes that evaluate you on each of these point levels are helping find a way to figure out, well, well yes, maybe now, Joe, you do qualify for this additional point level or this one. So we think more people are being helped and and um, because of the compassionate care of the providers who are going in and saying... But what that what is that doing to the state's bottom line then? I right. Mean, and what, we, what we've seen is that it is not, to my understanding, having this big detrimental 
effect or change on the state's bottom line. But so, it's because the caregivers are saying people are worse off. They're saying people are worse off. And, you know, I the budget hasn't come through to the Senate yet. And I actually have not been, I'm not on the budget, the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. I haven't been watching that carefully in the House to see how that portion is being dealt with or if it needs to be. But let me just say, we don't want to have less people getting in-home care. If we have an option, we want to keep them on in-home care because the alternative is not only not good for that person who wants to remain in his or her home, but it's also going to be tough on the taxpayers of the state of Missouri who have to foot the bill when they go into full-time nursing care. Okay, now I know, Senator, you said you only had a few minutes left. And one other quick thing I wanted to touch on, um, you are at the end of your first, first term, term in the Senate, yes. and you will be running for re-election. I, I will. I this filed yesterday. The 27th was filing day. Part so. of the parade of first-day filers? Yes, I was part of that parade. So at this point, sort of how do you see your contest? Um, at this point, I mean, do you even know who, who might be your opponent? Or is there going to be a primary on the other side or on your side? Well, so I live in what we call swing districts. So it's truly a split between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, every time I've had a race, it's been a tough one. And we've been very fortunate to win. Um, I don't anticipate anything different than that this time around. We're working hard. We'll be prepared. My focus is on my legislative duties, particularly always, but particularly during the legislative session. Um, I don't know who will be running against me. You may recall that I ran against Jay Ashcroft yeah, in my last election. Who, who Jay is now greeted the me yesterday at the Secretary of State's office, make sure I got through the process okay, which I really appreciate. Um, and uh, But Jay filed on the very last day of filing last time when we ran against each other. Yesterday was the first day. They have until my potential March opponents 27th. have until March 27th. So we will see between now and March 27th who it is. I don't know if I'll have a primary opponent. Generally, I would think not because uh, the Democrats are very much in support of me, um, but we certainly expect an opponent on the Republican side. What sort of mood are you hearing in your district compared to, let's say, 2016? I mean, although your district is a swing district, it was deemed a little bit maybe more Democratic-leaning, but, and of course, you won in 2014, which was actually a rough Democratic year um, statewide. Of course, 2016 was even worse. At this right. point, what are you hearing from your constituents in your district? Do you think Democrats are energized or not? Or is that overbilling? Oh, my gosh. I am so excited. I have heard from so many people who have never been involved in the process before, particularly young people who are standing up and saying, how can we help? How can we get involved? What we need to do is make sure that we continue to have that energy and we make sure that everyone gets out to vote. And if there are any questions from people about whether they're eligible to vote and what they need at the polls, I hope they'll give my office a call and we'll walk through that with them. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. As I said, our listeners, hopefully uh, this you got some information. And as I said, this is kind of rather humorous. Uh, I just wanted to, before I sign off, if I could tell you, not in competition with you, but there's a group of Democratic women legislators who try to do every week or every two weeks a podcast uh, at the end of the week to talk about what's going on. We call ourselves Heads Up Missouri, Missouri spelled out, headsupmissouri.com. So we're hopeful some of your listeners will become our listeners. I joke, thank you to the two listeners that we have on a regular <laughs> basis, and um, we're hopeful we'll get some more. Okay, well, uh, you can reach me on, follow me on Twitter at jmanis, that's at J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Marshall on Twitter at Marshall G. Report. 
Okay, and the Senator, how can we reach you on social media? At Jill Shoup, uh, jillshoup.com, and please feel welcome to call my office. You can find that anywhere at senate.mo.gov. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and again, thanks for the opportunity today. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, until next time, so long.